The ingredients for today's episode are butterfly, fiasco, and bourbon. I'm Andy Anderson, the mischievous maestro, and we're mixing up the perfect combination. In the history of opera, there are three instances of popular masterpieces that were catastrophic failures on their opening nights. Butterfly is the only one, however, where the blame can be fully put on the music itself. Barber Seville premiered in 1816 in Rome, and its failure on opening night was for complete non-musical factors. It was unpopular management of the theater, and the audience just really were revolting against that. The character Don Basilio fell through a trap door in the stage in the middle of Act One. The theater cat came on stage. That's a big no-no in Italy. Superstition, superstition, superstition. The tenor couldn't tune his guitar for his aria in Act One. And several people in the theater were there to support another composer, Paisiello, who had also composed an opera based on the same subject. La Traviata in 1853 premiered in Venice. And beyond the composer's control, Several things happened that were very bad. The tenor lost his voice. The baritone was sulking because his role wasn't big enough and refused to go on stage in Act Two. And the soprano, whose figure on stage wasn't convincing enough for the Venetian audience of a woman dying of consumption. However, without a single note being altered and without anything being changed, the second performances of those two operas were instant successes and solidified their presence in the greats of the opera rep. And then there's the story of opening night for Madame Butterfly. But we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. No sooner that Puccini had launched Tosca in January of 1900 than he began looking for the subject for his next opera. He looked at several subjects, including Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, Rostand's Cyrano, and a piece about Marie Antoinette. And he actually kept going back to the Marie Antoinette subject several times throughout his career. And then, of course, there were several subject comic subjects a genre that he was hesitant about, but would finally visit 18 years later with his only comic opera, Gianni Schicchi. While in London for the premiere of Tosca at Covent Garden, Puccini attended the Duke of York's theater one evening and watched a performance of a double bill of one-act plays. On the program that evening was Jerome Jerome's play, Miss Hobbs, and a piece by David Belasco called Madame Butterfly. At the end of the performance, according to Belasco, Puccini rushed to Belasco's dressing room and urgently begged him for the operatic rights to his play. Belasco wrote in a letter, I agreed at once and told him that he could. Make any sort of contract that you want, because it was absolutely impossible to discuss arrangements with an impulsive Italian who has tears in his eyes and both arms around your neck. During the next few months, Puccini traveled for revivals of Tosca and a few new productions in new cities and also a few pleasure trips to Milan, but we'll talk about that later in a different podcast. As Puccini was bemoaning the fact that he has nothing to work on, he wrote to a dear friend, The more I think of Butterfly, the more irresistibly I am attracted. Oh, if only I had it here, I would set to work on it immediately. All of this talk of catastrophe on opening night has gotten me thirsty. So, let's make a drink. At the beginning of the duet, in Act One, between Pinkerton and Sharpless, Pinkerton asks the immortal question. Il punch whiskey, 
So, in the spirit of Act 1, let's make some milk punch. The first recorded mention of milk punch is actually in a travelogue from 1688 in Scotland. The drink quickly spread, and the origin of the drink is actually attributed to Alfred Benn, an English female playwright and poet. The earliest recorded drink recipe is actually in print from a 1711 cookbook. A side note, you know how I like my side notes. Aphra Ben is one of the first to make her living entirely from writing. And she's one of the few female writers buried in Westminster Abbey. Milk punch. This is what you're going to need. Go to your bar and pull out the bourbon. I'll be using bullet bourbon. You can use whatever. Make sure it's a pure bourbon. You don't want a rye whiskey. You want bourbon. You're going to need simple syrup. Please don't go to the store and buy it. Make it. It's really easy. Equal parts sugar and water. You boil it for one minute. You let it cool off. Cold whole milk. Please don't use 2% or skim milk. It's whole milk. So for all you health nuts out there, you're just going to have to drink those calories. You're going to need vanilla extract. If you make yours homemade, even better. If not, pull the bottle out of the cupboard that you only use during the holidays for your baking. Bonus, vanilla extract is 40 to 60% alcohol. So there you go. And you're going to need some nutmeg for garnishment. You're going to start by putting some ice in a cocktail shaker. After that, add two ounces of bourbon. Three ounces of ice-cold whole milk. One ounce of simple syrup. Two dashes of vanilla extract. And if your vanilla extract doesn't have a little dash cap on it, that's about a quarter teaspoon. Shake it well. Shake it for about 15 to 20 seconds. You want the shaker to get cold. You want to froth the milk. Now you're going to pour it into a rocks glass, but don't put ice in it. And then for a little garnish, grate some fresh nutmeg on top. If you don't have a fresh nutmeg to grate, pull out the stuff you only use when making pumpkin pies. Sprinkle a little bit of that on top as well. And there you go, my friends. You've got milk punch. So my friends, as you're sipping on your milk punch, if you're having random memories of the holidays, yes, eggnog is a direct cousin of milk punch. I hope you're enjoying it. And now let's talk some more about Madame Butterfly. David Belasco was an American playwright, producer, and a theatrical innovator. He moved to New York City from San Francisco, and after spending a few years leasing theaters, he decided that he needed to build his own. That theater opened in 1906, and it still stands today on 44th Street. Currently, the musical Girl from the North County is playing there. Well, sort of. It is said that he was the first American playwright whose name, regardless of the star actor in the play or the name of the play, but it was his name that brought patrons to the theater. 
He gained a huge reputation for minute attention to detail, sensational realism, or as we call it in Puccini land, verismo, lavish scenery, incredible spectacular mechanical effects, and experimental lighting. David Belasco was also nicknamed the Wizard of the Stage. He maintained a large staff of people that worked constantly to develop and perfect new special effects. And he claimed to be connected to the production of over 374 different plays, most of them that he either wrote or adapted himself. His one-act play, Madame Butterfly, is based on a short story by John Luther Long. And Long based that story on a story that was told to him by his sister that was based on a semi-autobiographical French novel from 1887 called Madame Chrysanthemy by Pierre Lottie. And his story, David Belasco's story, begins where Butterfly has already been abandoned, basically where Puccini starts his act two. Remember that we said that he was the wizard of the stage. In his play, Madame Butterfly, he has a 14-minute section where there is absolutely no words. This is a play. So there's no music, there's nothing happening for 14 minutes, except a special effect on stage where he recreates a sunrise. For 14 minutes, the audience is suspended in this incredible moment where the only thing that happens is a lighting effect. Remember the name David Belasco, because we're going to talk more about him in a future episode with another Puccini opera. By March of 1901, Puccini had heard from America that Madame Butterfly was at his disposal. His librettists, Ilica and Jacosa, remember them? They also set Tosca and La Boheme, set about to turn the play into the libretto that Puccini would need. While the two worked on getting material to Puccini from the months of March to September, Puccini attended several more revivals of his most recent operas, and in May, he purchased his first car. Puccini was a huge fan of the automobile and also speedboats. He and Elvira, his longtime lover, they met in 1884. She was still married at the time to a man she described as a serial womanizer, if only she had known then. And with this gentleman, she had a daughter, Fosca. Puccini raised Fosca as his own child, and we'll talk more about that later. But anyway, Puccini and Elvira spent the summer at a resort, and that fall, Puccini was able to start work, finally, on the music. Puccini had even spoken to Illich about his idea for an intermezzo to correspond with Belasco's lighting stunt, The Sunrise. Puccini wrote, We must find something good, mysterious voices humming, for instance. Puccini kept working and also researching to try to make the music as authentic as possible. One of the scores that he studied and still sits in his library today at Toro del Lago was Gilbert and Sullivan's The Mikado. He was also gifted a book of Japanese folk songs from the wife of the Japanese ambassador. 
For the next few months, Puccini worked on the opera, and one of the things that he kept fighting with his librettists about was the length of the opera, specifically how many acts. Puccini wanted two, but knew that the second act would be quite long. Everyone tried talking him out of it, but he refused to listen. The first few weeks of 1903 found the opera on schedule. In fact, Puccini was so confident that it would be done early that he wrote to Ricordi and said, go ahead and book the theater for the premiere. Then on the 25th of February, while returning from a dinner party, Puccini's driver ran off the road and plunged the car down a hill. The car overturned, pinning Puccini. Elvira Antonio, he and Elvira's son, although they weren't married, Antonio, by the way, was 18 years old at the time. Elvira and Antonio were tossed from the car, but they were okay. Puccini had a broken shin bone and several contusions and spent the next four months laid up, unable to sit at his piano and work. So unfortunately, he fell behind on the project. Side story. The day after the car accident, Elvira's husband died, and this now freed Puccini and Elvira to marry. After several trips to Paris for a production of Tosca, which opened on October the 13th of 1903, October 13th happens to be a favorite day of mine, Puccini then returned to finish the opera. And on the 27th of December, 1903, Madame Butterfly was completed. On January 4th of 1904, Puccini and Elvira were finally married. And then on the 7th of January, rehearsals began. With such a late finish to the opera, cast members were receiving music as it was being printed, and because of the want of secrecy, no advanced copies of the opera were sold, so the audiences did not know what to expect upon entering the theater. During this time, remember the days before logging on to Apple Music and listening to something? Do you remember those days? I barely do. But in those days, opera scores were printed and sold in advance so that audience members could learn the music before attending the opera for the first time. They didn't allow that for this time. They wanted secrecy, but also Puccini finished the opera too late to get it printed. The cast was also instructed not to take their music with them outside the theater because Puccini and Ricordi, his publisher, didn't want it to fall into the wrong hands. Now, for those of you that are in the performing arts, you know that practice makes perfect. And if you can't practice at home and you're always in rehearsal in the theater, if you can't take your music home with you, you don't really have a lot of time to get it right. Keep all of that in mind, my friends, as we start discussing why opening night was a fiasco. Think back to the beginning of the episode when we talked about the catastrophic opening nights for Barbara Seville and La Traviata. And I told you we would talk about the opening night of Madame Butterfly. Well, here we are. Or as some called it, not so much an opening night, but a complete fiasco. The date? February 17th, 1904. The setting? La Scala in Milan. It has been said that the audience was in a bad mood that night, and by the end of Act 1, and then even more so by the end of Act 2, which lasted over 90 minutes long. And it's said that the audience turned, to use a word from 
modern tweets that gets used a lot these days by certain politicians, the audience turned nasty. And there are several reasons for that. They didn't like the modern dress on Pinkerton and Sharpless. At La Scala, it was a very traditional house. Everything was, um, it was just a very traditional house. And with the modern dress of, of Pinkerton and Sharpless, especially Sharpless wearing a suit, Pinkerton wearing a U.S. Navy uniform, the audience really didn't like that. It kind of took them back a little bit, possibly the first time that they've ever seen anything like that on stage. They didn't like the fact that they were basically staring at the same set for the entire evening with little to no change. Remember, the original Belasco play was just a one act with no set change. And so with Puccini, keeping, wanting to keep the, the integrity of the story, but also having to add an entire act at the beginning, everything takes place on the same set, what we call a unit set. On Butterfly's entrance, the audience shouted, it's Boheme, it's Boheme, when one of the phrases slightly resembled something from Act 3 of La Boheme. Remember, my friends, that the gallery at La Scala, these are your most diehard opera fans. They know every note, every word of every opera they've ever heard. And since they are already kind of in a bad mood, when Butterfly entered, and they heard something that reminded them from Act 3 of La Boheme. At one point, a draft of wind from offstage blew Butterfly's kimono up, and the audience yelled, she's pregnant, she's pregnant. And indeed, she was. The soprano was with child, and the father was her lover, no other than the conductor that night in the pit, Toscanini. He was not very popular with the La Scala audience at the time. Another thing that really got the audience was after the intermezzo in Act 2, after they had already been sitting there about 45, 50 minutes, and during the sunrise scene, Ricordi had placed in all the corners of the theater musicians with various bird calls because he wanted to help create the morning scene. This is a verismo. This is real. This is true. Those are our key words. The bird calls cast the audience into hysterics, and then they started to join in with their own mooing and chirping and braying and other animal sounds, anything that they could come up with to completely disrupt the sound. In fact, it's said that on opening night, you could not hear the orchestra at some points over the audience. At the end of Act One, Puccini and the cast went out for a bow and they were hissed off stage. At the end of the performance, there was not a single curtain call. It's actually thought that the disturbances were caused by rivals in the audience and had planned to ruin the performance from the beginning. Puccini had never been more sure of himself in a composition. And even at the end of this performance, he still thought this was the opera that everyone would remember long after he was gone. The next morning, Puccini walked into the office at La Scala, withdrew the opera. He also refunded the 20,000 lira that he had been paid in advance. And he immediately the next day set out to revise the opera. He had faith in the eventual success of this work. He ended up revising it four more times. It's the most he ever worked on an opera. The original production, 17th February, 1904. Just a few months later, the 28th of May in 1904, it was re in Brescia. And then again, that same version in 1906 in Washington, D.C. Also in 1906 was the Metropolitan Opera version. In 1907 was the Paris version. And then later in that year, 
another premiere of what we now call the standard version. So whenever you go see Madame Butterfly today in any opera house in the United States, it's always the 1907 version. Between all of the versions, there really aren't that many differences, but there were enough that made it work. After the Brescia premiere, Puccini wrote, the Bracians show themselves as enthusiastic as the Milanese had been hostile. The second performance was attended by the Queen of Italy, to whom Puccini dedicated the score. A funny note, Madame Butterfly was never again performed at La Scala during Puccini's lifetime. There are several bad guys in opera, but to me personally, as a conductor and as someone that's done this opera multiple times, there truly is no more vile a creature in opera than Pinkerton, the tenor. This is someone who has completely destroyed the trust of marriage and ruins this young woman's life. He's completely selfish. Only at the end, when Butterfly dies, does he realize how his actions have led to this catastrophic ending. He was so afraid to see her again that he sent his friend to tell her the news of his return and his plan to take their child back to America with his new wife. He even sings about it in the beginning duet, how he will one day return to America and have a real American wife and a real American life. And his friend Sharpless warns him that he thinks this is real and she believes this is real and will take it absolutely serious. But Pinkerton doesn't listen and he brushes this off. A truly horrible human being, in my opinion. Madame Butterfly has been used in pop references and pop culture since its premiere. A couple that you've probably heard of, the smash Broadway musical Miss Saigon, opened on Broadway in 1991 and closed in 2001, with a revival in 2017 that ran for about 14 months. Miss Saigon takes place in Vietnam instead of Japan, but it's basically the same exact story. Also, remember how we talked about Les Miserables, the Victor Hugo novel, being a possible subject matter for a Puccini opera? Well, flash forward to the late 80s, and the humming chorus from Puccini's Madame Butterfly was used as the basis for the melody of the big hit song from Les Mis, Bring Him Home. Also, another pop reference that you may or may not know about, all of you Weezer fans out there, the, the American band Weezer, Weezer actually recorded an album in 1996 titled Pinkerton, and it is loosely based on the opera. Of course, there have been multiple movies, plays, ballets, animated productions, all based on Puccini's opera. It has become one of the most often performed operas in the repertoire, despite its rather rough beginning. A recommended recording, my friends, that I would like to tell you about. It's to me, what I think the most perfect opera recording 
in existence. And I have a lot of opera recordings that I feel really strongly about, but this particular one, there's something about it when you listen to it that it just makes me sit back and think that's exactly what it's supposed to sound like. This particular recording has the great soprano Renata Scotto and the great tenor Carlo Bergonzi, and it's conducted by Sir John Barbaroli. An amazing recording. You probably have it in your library already. If not, get it. You can download it. You can purchase it. I've got it on CD, two different prints, and I've also got it on vinyl. Recommended reading, a really wonderful book called The Puccini Companion, and it's multiple essays edited by Simonato Puccini, Puccini's last living blood relative. And unfortunately, we just lost uh, Simonetta a couple years ago. But the essay inside the Puccini Companion is called Lieutenant F.B. Pinkerton, Problems in the Genesis and the Performance of Madame Butterfly. A really wonderful read, and I highly recommend it. The book is published by Norton Publishing in New York. My friends, I've received a couple emails. By the way, if you have a question that you would like answered on the podcast, shoot me an email, themischievousmaestro at gmail.com. And I will try to get that answered for you. And if I don't answer it in the podcast, I'll still answer the email to you and try to answer your question. Plus, just shoot me an email. I'd love to hear from you. But anyway, one of the emails I got uh, this week, Peter in New York City said, I'm a huge fan of Madam Butterfly, but I've always wondered, how did the United States National Anthem wind up in the music by an Italian composer? Well, we're going to have to go into a little history of our national anthem in order to answer that question. Remember, Pinkerton was an officer in the United States Navy, so keep that in mind. On the 13th of September in 1814, Francis Scott Key wrote the poem that we call the text for our national anthem, and he wrote this during the War of 1812. The poem was titled The Defense of Fork McHenry. Later, the poem was set to a popular English drinking tune that was written by John Stanford Smith, and this tune was often heard in men's social clubs throughout England. The tune was one that most people in America would have known at the time, and so it was just easy to go ahead and set this, this text, the, the Defense of Fork McHenry, Francis Scott Key's poem, to this tune, and eventually it was named The Star-Spangled Banner and was officially recognized for use by the United States Navy in 1889. So it would have been something that Pinkerton would have known. President Woodrow Wilson also uh, officially recognized it as the Star-Spangled Banner in 1916. It was officially named the National Anthem in 1931 by President Herbert Hoover. Now, why an English tune for our national anthem? But remember where we came from, my friends, the, when, where this country, where the, the people came from to, to found this country, from England. So popular tunes from England naturally made their way over, including one patriotic song that we all sing, My Country Tis of Thee, is based on the same tune that God Save the Queen, the national anthem for the UK, is based on. As a side note, something you may not have known, America the Beautiful was almost declared the official national anthem until 1931 when the Star-Spangled Banner was declared the national anthem. So, Peter, how did the national anthem wind up in Madame Butterfly? Puccini obviously did his research and knew that in 1900, between 1900 and 1904, when he was composing the opera, that this tune, that this song was 
popular and officially recognized by the U.S. Navy. Another question, Yvonne in Florida sent me an email and asked, as a conductor, do you consider Butterfly a challenge to conduct or easier than Puccini's other operas? Yvonne, this is a really kind of tricky question to answer, but I'll try to do it in a short, succinct manner. I've done the opera four times, four different productions, and I consider it the most challenging to conduct because of the amount of support that you absolutely have to provide to the soprano. Now, Opera singers all need support, and I'm the type of conductor that I never take my eyes off any of the singers on stage, no matter what the show is. I'm constantly breathing with them. I'm I'm giving them all the support I can to make sure that the pit and the stage are constantly lined up and so that the cast on stage feels completely at ease, that they can just relax and do what they need to do. But keep in mind, once Butterfly enters the stage about 15 minutes into the show, She almost never leaves the stage, even through the intermezzo, the sunrise scene. She's on stage kneeling, so she can't sneak off to grab a drink of water. So I feel that sopranos that that tackle this role need constant support, nonstop, 100% attention from the conductor. It's such a physical, mental, and musically taxing role And the show itself is just so taxing. Now, yes, there are other longer operas. There are other more difficult operas. But I really feel that Butterfly, in my opinion, is the hardest of them for a conductor. In fact, it was one of the last operas in the Puccini canon that I learned. I felt for a huge period of my life that I was not ready to do Butterfly. And then I had the opportunity to do my first butterfly, and it was, it was magical and scary and fantastic all at the same time. And I still feel that way several years later when I'm preparing that score. I want to give a shout out to a really great company. Speaking of Madame Butterfly, the last time I conducted the opera was with a company called Raylan Moore Opera in New Hampshire. And I want to give a shout out to that company. It's a really amazing company. And if you want to look them up, go to www.raylanmoore.com. Raylan Moore is spelled R-A-Y-L-Y-N-M-O-R, raylanmoore.com. It's a great company in New Hampshire. They do some really fantastic productions. They make everything accessible. And I think that's why I like working with the company. I've, I've done a few shows with them. I'm going back soon to do another show with them. I am the type of person that always likes to make opera accessible. That has always been my mission statement as a conductor, as a musician, as an artist, that everyone should be able to go to the opera and enjoy it. I don't care if you don't speak the language that the opera is being performed in. If you've never been to an opera, if you're an opera professional, 
everyone should be able to go to opera, sit back, relax, lose themselves for three hours in a beautiful story. Raylan Moore is the, the, the company that I have found that I work with on a pretty regular basis where our ideas and our visions and our mission statements align. And that's why I love working with them. Raylan Moore Opera in New Hampshire. Plus, you cannot find a more beautiful place to go and attend an opera. Check them out, RaylanMooreOpera.com. Join us next time as we take a look at Puccini's first international success, Menon Lascaux. We'll start in France, and then we'll come back to the U.S. for her tragic demise. While discussing the opera, we'll be sipping on the classic cocktail, French 75. Until then, my friends, stay thirsty for knowledge. The Mischievous Maestro podcast is researched and written by me, Andy Anderson. Recording engineer and co-producer is Ryan Hall. Art director and co-producer, Jefferson Reidenauer. Very personal assistant to The Mischievous Maestro and co-producer, Megan King. Production assistant, co-producer, and all-round great guy is Yvonne Kahn. Publicist for Andy Anderson is Jonathan Blaylock. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite platform to get all of the upcoming episodes with exciting drinks. To learn more about The Mischievous Maestro and for the drink recipes, visit our website, themischievousmaestro.com, and follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Mischievous Maestro is so much more than a podcast. It's a lifestyle. I would like to remind you to please drink responsibly. If you're not old enough, don't do it. And if you are old enough, do it in moderation. And if you're having a bad day and refuse to drink in moderation, then please follow these simple rules for overindulgence. Please don't drink and drive. Please don't drink too much and then email your boss asking for a raise. And please, for all that's holy in the world, don't drink too much and then drunk text your ex at 3 a.m. This podcast is the sole property of the mischievous maestro and may not be used in whole or any part without the express written permission of Andy Anderson.